Our text is Genesis 34. Uh, in the Bibles in front of you, in the, in the chair backs, that's page 19. We'd encourage you to follow along as we read our passage. Genesis 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamar spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will. And I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by, by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we'll be gone. Their words pleased Hamar and Hamar's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamar and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city saying, these men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of, of his city listened to Hamar and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, while they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword, and they took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. 
They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have, bought, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Let's pray. Father, the gripping reality of your word shows us the need for saving life in your Son. Lord, as we see in this unvarnished story the reality of our own human fallenness, Jesus, I pray through the preaching of the word now, You're listening to draw the sermon audio to from Mill Creek Community Church. Show if you us like what you've heard or want to find so out more information, please visit our website name, at mymillcreek.com. several years, the political climate in our country has been a little bit tense, to say the least. It seems like everywhere you've walked, it's been a, a minefield of different issues that are ready to explode out of nowhere, and it felt like we were treading on very dangerous ground. Now, I don't have any desire to bring up any of those issues here for us this morning. I think at this point, we all have a little bit of PTSD. But I bring it up because I think over the last few years, we had a little taste of what things were like leading up to and during the days of Jesus. You see, back then in Judaism, there was basically two main sects. Now, just like our political climate, there was other smaller branches of Judaism, but really there was these two main players. Uh, on one side, you had the Sadducees. And when you think of the Sadducees, think of the political elite. They were the wealthy aristocrats, and they held all the political power because they spent all of their time buddying up to and agreeing with the Roman Empire. And for them, they thought it best in their philosophy and understanding of the law that you should do anything you can to get ahead in this world even if that meant throwing out certain biblical truth and only following portions of God's law. Now, on the other side, you had the Pharisees, and they couldn't be anything more opposite than Sadducees. You see, they had this strict adherence to the Old Testament laws, even so much that they created more laws to keep themselves from breaking the other laws. And for them, they hated the Roman government. You see, they viewed their time under Rome as on par with the Egyptian captivity or the Babylonian exile, and they believed that a deliverer was rising up to crush the Romans and someday put them back in power. Now, as you can imagine, these two groups hated each other. They did not get along, and they fought and bickered with themselves so much that they didn't even understand when God himself came to earth and spoke to them. 
And I think if we're honest, if we really evaluate the climate of our culture and our political and religious landscape, we will understand that we have some things in relation. You see, in the church, there are basically two sides. On one side, there are those who believe that we should assimilate into the culture, that we should do anything we can to love those around us, even if that means compromising on biblical truth. Anything that's offensive or anything that may insult the culture around us should just be ignored or minimized or even thrown out of the Bible. And then on the other side, you have a group who believes that we should speak the truth as boldly and clearly as possible, even if it offends the people around us, and sometimes especially if it offends the people around us. This side believes that we need to instill biblical truth in our culture and bring the church back into prominence. And, and there's this tension between these two sides of both trying to fight what is the best way to navigate the world and the culture around us. And what we'll find this morning as we dive into our text that on either side of the spectrum, there are dangers. If we find ourselves pushing in either direction, we can find ourselves, as we try to bring the truth to the world, actually acting more like the world than we believe was possible. And that's what we'll see this morning in the story of Jacob. You see, over the past two weeks, we've learned that Jacob has been making his way back to the land of, of Canaan after being gone for 20 years. Now, on his way back, Jacob found himself getting ready to encounter his brother Esau, who last he knew was trying to kill him. But before he could encounter his brother, he met God himself. And in a battle in the night, Jacob actually wrestled with God and was changed forever to the point when God took away his old name, Jacob, and called him Israel, the one who strives with God. Afterwards, Jacob went out to meet his brother Esau, and there was this beautiful moment of restoration as two brothers came together who originally hated each other, and they embraced each other and wept. It's a beautiful moment in the story of Jacob. But then things took a negative path. You see, after Jacob met his brother Esau, God had called him to head down south to the land of his father. But rather than listening to the voice of God and doing what he was supposed to, Jacob went north to the land of Shechem. And there he bought a plot of ground from the city and the Shechemites, and he finds himself this morning in dangerous proximity to the people of the tribes of Canaan. As we'll see this morning, Jacob's decision will have devastating results for the family of God's people and will put at risk God's plan of salvation for the entire world. As we look at our text this morning, we will ask two questions that may help us understand how we in a church may be turning ourselves uh, to look more like the world than we want to. Our text this morning is Genesis chapter 24. Please open up your Bibles with me and follow along with me as we dive into this text. The first question we'll be taking a look at this morning, question number one, Will we try to become like the world? Follow with me in verses 1 to 4. It says, Now Dinah, the daughter of, of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, 
he seized her, lay with her, and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved this young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to, her, to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now, immediately as we dive into our text, we find ourselves smack dab in, a, in the middle of a difficult issue. The text is very clear that when she, that Dinah went out to the land, she was raped by the prince of the land, a guy named Shechem. Now, we have to understand that this is a very tense moment and a very difficult subject matter. And my heart goes out to anyone who has been sexually assaulted or had to deal with sexual abuse. But we have to also understand that this text is not actually about Dinah's rape. No, this text is actually about the fallout that happens after Dinah's rape. You see, Jacob has put himself in a difficult situation. And now he's found himself brushing up against the world. And now we're going to see how the people of God are going to respond when they become too close to the people of the world. What we'll notice as we navigate through this text is that over and over we will see these family relations that highlight how different people in our text fail to do what they're supposed to in response to this horrific and heinous crime. Just in verse 1, we notice here that Dinah is called the daughter of Leah in order to connect her with her two brothers, Simeon and Levi, who we will see highlighted later on in the text. But we also see her referred to as the daughter of Jacob. And the reason for that is it's highlighting Jacob's failures and his mistake in moving his family into a dangerous position by going to the land of Shechem. You see, number one, God told him to go in the other direction. And number two, we learned last week that Jacob actually found himself entering into a business deal with the Shechemites by buying a piece of land. And now here in our text, we are finding out because of Jacob's decisions, because of his sinful actions, his daughter has now been raped. We have to understand that at this point, Dinah's probably about 15 years old give or take a few years. Jacob has done a horrible thing. He has put his family in a dangerous situation. And now we find out that Shechem, the man who has raped Jacob's daughter, now wants to marry her. And now we have to navigate through this issue with Jacob to see how he will deal with the fallout. Follow with me in verses 5 to 8. It says, Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, But his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. Now, Right off the bat, as we dive into our text, you'll notice Jacob's passiveness. Jacob is acting here like his his old self, the man he's been his whole life, the man who anytime there was conflict, he ran in the other direction. And here the text says that Jacob held his peace. And what he's doing here is he's waiting for his sons to come to give him some sort of backup because Jacob is afraid. 
though Jacob has heard the voice of God on several occasions, even though he's seen that God is with him, we find him afraid of the Shechemites. And because of this, we find Jacob operating in passive. And we see how the text will heap, uh, heap guilt on Jacob as we read through this text. You see, just here in verse uh, 7 it says, Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. You see, this is probably a later note brought in by a scribe at a later date to illustrate the fact that Jacob knows what Shechem did is evil. Jacob knows what he's supposed to do in this situation, but he's not operating as a man who's called by God. He's operating as a man of fear. And we'll see as we move on that rather than standing up and protecting his family, he, he chooses passiveness, which he thinks is keeping his family out of danger. But as we move forward, we will find out that Jacob is actually putting his family in more danger than he realizes. Continue with me in verses 8 to 12. It says, But Hamar spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son longs for your daughter. Please give her to me to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give, us daughters, give da- your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourself. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and train in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask for me a great a bridal price and a gift as you will and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Now, do you notice what's happening here in the text? Basically, what Hamar and Shechem are offering is for the tribe of Israel to assimilate into Shechem's city. What this means is that the family of Israel, the tribe of Israel, would cease to exist. And they'd basically become Shechemites. And that is a huge problem. Because as we've seen, as we've journeyed through the the book of Genesis, is that ever since the fall of creation, ever since humanity dove into sin, God has been separating out a group of people. And these group of people were God's plan of salvation for the entire world. These people were supposed to be separate from all the the, the tribes of all the earth. They were supposed to be different. But in one foul stroke, Jacob has the opportunity to wipe away all of God's plan of salvation. And as we move forward, we will see that based on Jacob's passiveness and his silence in the rest of the text, there's an indication that Jacob is ready to make this deal. Jacob is ready to trade away everything God has been doing and to abandon the word of the Lord because he is afraid. And I hate to say that many churches operate operate on this understanding. You see, rather than standing up for the truth and speaking the word of God, many churches and many Christians have chosen to assimilate into the culture. They have chosen not to be an enemy of the world, to be a friend of the world, and thrown out doctrines and truth that are integral to God's word. 
You see, on this side of the spectrum, these people would rather stand down than stand up. They would rather turn away from the truth in order that the world would not hate them. But for us this morning, we have to understand that we are called to be God's spokespeople. We are the ones that have been given the message of salvation, this great message of the gospel, and no compromising of the truth is ever going to lead people to salvation. If Christians aren't willing to stand up and call sin, sin, if we're not willing to stand up and call out the, the injustice of our world, who is? We have to be the spokespeople for the word of God. And that doesn't mean that we do so out of anger. It doesn't mean that we do so out of hatred or judgment. We have to be the voice of salvation, the voice of love that warns the world that they are heading to destruction. But Jacob, here in the text, rather than standing up for the truth, decides to back down. But we'll also see that there's another risk in this situation. You see, as we'll move forward, we'll find that Jacob's sons will take center stage. And while it will be before we see these two sons introduced, we will realize that they are on the other side of the spectrum, doing a pendulum swing and also compromising the truth. Which brings us to our second question this morning. Will we try to make the world look like us? Now, as we continue reading here, we will see Jacob's sons continue to be called Jacob's sons. And that's for a reason. Number one, it's, it's to continue to hurl guilt on Jacob for not stepping up and taking charge of the situation. But number two, it's also showing that Jacob's sons are basically usurping their father's role and taking a leadership that doesn't belong to them. And we'll see as we navigate through the text moving forward that Jacob's son, Simeon and Levi, will try to steal their father's role as head of the household and will later be rejected as the leader of God's family because of the decisions they make moving forward in the text. But read with me in verses 13 to 17 as we see these two sons devise a plan. It says, The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamar deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to him, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgraceful thing to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people." But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Now, what we're seeing here in the text is Jacob stuns stepping in front of Jacob and making a deal on their own. And we see them strike this arrangement with, with Shechem and Hamar that if every male will become circumcised in their city, then they will agree to hand over Dinah to them. Now, from verse 13, we know that this isn't a legit deal. They have no intention of genuinely giving over their, daughter to their sister to marriage to the Shechemites. Which brings us to another important point and another highlight about Jacob's lack of leadership. 
Notice here that the text says they answered deceitfully. This sounds a lot like Jacob's old self. And I also want you to notice here in the text that not once has Jacob called Israel. Even though we learned last week that after Jacob wrestled with God, he was given a new name. We see him given his old name here in the text. And this is to highlight the fact that Jacob is not operating like a man who strives with God. He's not operating like a man who has seen God in the night and actually wrestled with him. He is acting like his own old deceitful self. And we see here in the text that rather than following after their father's faithfulness and willingness to follow after God, Jacob's sons are following after the worst of their father. They're acting as deceivers. And as we read in the text, they are operating so sinfully that they are willing to hand over an important symbol in disgraceful means. You see, we read here that Jacob's sons are offering over the symbol of circumcision to the Shechemites. Now, what we have to understand about circumcision is it is an important symbol that God handed down to his people. Basically, circumcision was a sign that these people had committed their lives to God, that they had been chosen by God, and that God had blessed them. And here we see Simeon and Levi willingly handing it over to these people who have no favor in God's eyes. They are trading away this sacred symbol that is meant to be a blessing. But here in the text, we will learn that they are using it for a curse. And unfortunately for Hamor and Shechem, they believe these two sons. And in verses 18 to 24, we see Shechem and Hamor stand up before their city and urge them to take this request. Now, we won't read through that section as we heard it read in the beginning. But what happens here is Shechem and Hamor go before the city gate and they urge all the males in the city to be circumcised. And the city agrees with it. Now, I have to admit, I found that a little strange. As an adult male, I, I realize that this is a rather painful surgery to undergo, circumcision. And I won't get into the details here for you this morning, but it seemed a little odd to me. Uh, until I realized, as I dove into the research, that circumcision was actually more common in those days than I realized. You see, it wasn't uncommon for certain tribes to use circumcision as a, tribe of, uh, a sign of masculinity. When a boy came to age, he would be uh, circumcised in order to, to show his transition into manhood. So in order for, for them to bring up circumcision, it wouldn't be that odd in their culture. It'd be like maybe getting eight gauges in your ear or getting some sort of piercing. And we see that the, the, the Shechemites go through with it. And here they are thinking that they have made a wonderful deal with the people of God and are now ready to incorporate Jacob, a man of great wealth, into their city. Which brings us to an, an important point. As we're reading through this text, obviously we know that Hamar and Shechem are sinful people. And Shechem actions are something that need to be condemned. But they actually believe that they're doing the right thing in their culture. You see, in their culture... In the ancient world, Shechem actually didn't do anything wrong. You see, we learn in our text that Shechem is a prince of the land, and a man who will most likely be the king when his father dies. 
that means that he can have whatever woman he wants. And the fact that Dinah was unmarried and that he even goes forward and offers a high bridal price meant that in his culture he was actually being honorable. Now, we know from the Word of God that that's not actually true. Shechem is a sinner, and his actions don't make up for the fact that he sexually assaulted this woman. And it's worth us taking a short dive into Deuteronomy chapter 22 to understand what's going on here in the text. You see, oftentimes people try to pair this text with Deuteronomy 22 verses 28 and 29. I won't read that for you here this morning, but you can see that up, uh, up on the screen, and you can read through that on your own. Basically, that's saying if a man lies with a virgin and offers to marry her, he has to give her the full bridal price. Now, oftentimes, commentators have tried to associate this verse with rape, but we have to understand that that's not what this verse intends. If you were to back up and read the full context of Deuteronomy 22 uh, as we navigate through the law, we'll understand that God actually treats rape differently. And rape deserves the death penalty in God's eyes. You see, by Shechem offering to marry this woman does not make up for his actions. He is still a sinner worthy of condemnation. But the problem is, God's people are leading him to believe that he is being righteous. By giving him this sign of circumcision, by offering him this peace treaty, they are telling him that he is righteous in God's eyes and not a sinner. You see, rather than stepping up and speaking the truth clearly, they are veiling their intentions and they are handing over this gift of God in order to bring destruction to the Shechemites. And as we read forward, that is exactly what Jacob's sons do in verses 25 to 29. Follow with me as we read those verses. It says, On the third day when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Shechem came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth and all the little ones and their wives and all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. For the first time in our text, we see the revelation of which two of Jacob's sons we are talking about. But notice also how Jacob's name is still thrown in here, because Jacob is just as guilty in this situation. By his failure of leadership, his sons were able to step in and do something completely immoral. But at the same time, Simeon and Levi are not free from guilt here. Just because their father failed to lead doesn't mean they have the right to step up and take their father's role. They are acting sinfully. And what we're seeing here in the text from Simeon and Levi is actually a parallel to what Shechem did to Dinah. You see, what these two men are doing here is assaulting the city who had no guilt in Shechem's offense. 
You see, the Shechemites did nothing wrong to, to Dinah or to Simeon and Levi's sister. But here we see these two men rendering judgment on this entire city, even though one man was guilty. You see, the text is showing us that these events are parallel. While Shechem assaulted Dinah, Simeon and Levi assaulted the city of Shechem, and they are just as guilty. Just like Shechem, who deserves death, these two men are also guilty in the eyes of the Lord. You see, the reality is, is that for Simeon and Levi, this was never about Dinah to begin with. You see, what we learn in our text is that when they made this deal with the, with the Shechemites, and when they walked into the city, they actually handed over their daughter to the man who sexually assaulted her. Did you notice that in verse 26? Let me read this again. It says, They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house. Do you hear that? This sister who has been taken advantage of, this sister who has just been assaulted, they handed over to the man who assaulted her. You see, this was never about Dinah. This was all about their pride and their reputation. This is all about the fact that someone came against their sister and did them wrong. They used a horrible, disgusting act that fell on their sister and used it to their own advantage. These men are operating not like people who have been called by God, but just like everyone else in the world around them. You see, this is not how God's people exact judgment. This is not judgment. This is vengeance. And this is how the world operates. And here they are handing over an important symbol from God in order to bring destruction on the city. The reality, church, is we too can fall in danger of legislating righteousness all the while condemning the people around us. You see, far too often we find ourselves speaking the truth so that our world will be changed so that we're more comfortable. We can find ourselves pushing agendas and trying to change the sculpture of our country in order for us to be comfortable in this world all the while pushing people into death, knowing they are condemned because we only gave them the law and we never gave them Jesus. You see, will we have a calling to stand up for the truth? Will we have a calling to speak out against injustice? We have a higher calling to hand people Jesus. And if we are successful of changing all the laws of this country to favor the Christian, to make the world feel comfortable for us, and no one comes to Jesus, we have failed in our calling. You see, the danger on this side of the spectrum is we forget that just because people act righteous doesn't make them right in the eyes of the Lord. We have to hand people Jesus. And if we are not willing to stand up and speak this truth, we will find our world being condemned even though it looks more like the Christians around them. You see, the truth is there is dangers on both sides of the spectrum. 
If we find ourselves operating in the extremes and trying to make this world a better place for us, we will miss the truth of God's world, that people around us are dying. As we navigate through our text, we notice that over and over again, we see Jacob's and his sons standing up, but never once the mention of God. As we step out of our situation and we bring things to a settlement, we realize that they find themselves operating outside of God's graces. We see here in verses 30 and 31 that even though Simeon and Levi exacted judgment, nothing is solved. Those verses say this. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said... Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Now, it's clear from the text that neither Jacob or his sons are trusting God. You see, Jacob is afraid that if all these tribes come together and they turn against him, he will be destroyed. Even though time and time again, God has delivered him. When Laban, his uncle, rose up against him and pursued him, God intervened and stopped Laban from acting. When Esau, his brother, was furious with him and tried to kill him, God changed Esau's heart. But for some reason, Jacob is still afraid. And on the other side, Simeon and Levi Rather than trusting God to bring vengeance on the city, to deliver them from the inhabitants of the land, they took God's judgment into their own hands. And the reality we see as we move forward in the Bible is that God was storing up judgment for these nations, for these people of the land. But rather than trusting in God and allowing God to work, they put themselves in the shoes of God. You see, if we find ourselves operating like Jacob and Jacob's sons, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we will miss God when he's standing right before our eyes. You see, in the days when Jesus came and he found himself before the Israelites, nobody recognized him because nobody was chasing after God. Nobody was trusting in God's vision and no one was really leaning into God's word. They found themselves blending into the world and operating just like all the people around them. One side, they were assimilating into the culture and finding themselves acting just like the Romans. On the other side, they found them at war with the people who were uh, reigning over them rather than trusting God's deliverance. You see, church, our calling is not to save this world. Our calling is not to make this world a better place. It's just not biblical. The Bible says that this world is being brought to destruction, and we are here to speak the truth. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus said it like this. He said, you are light on the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. What Jesus was illustrating for us is that we are called both to be set apart but also to be a beacon of hope in this world. 
We are called to be the ones who are different than all the nations and all the tribes around us. We are called to be the light in the darkness. We are called to speak the truth. And that is much harder than operating on either end of the spectrum. I remember learning this lesson many years ago when I was attending a world religion class at Northern Michigan University. You see, in this class, we walked through every major religion from Hinduism ending with Christianity. While I was a young Christian at the time, I made a decision that I was going to speak up for the truth. I was going to make clear that I was a Christian and that I believed that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world. Over and over again, I spoke up for Christianity and I even shared the gospel. And then when it came time for for us to get down to the Christian faith and really examine what we believed, I find myself paired with a group from the Atheist Alliance on campus for a group project. Now as we sat together, they ridiculed my faith. They spoke down against Christians. They called us hypocrites who are judgmental. And they spoke vile things against my brothers and sister in faith. And I sat there wondering how I was going to confront these two individuals as they hurled attacks against me, as they insulted me, as they insulted my faith. But I was, as I was thinking of the right and appropriate attack on their faith, they turned to me and they said, you know, you're not like we expected a Christian to be. You're a lot kinder, a lot gentler, a lot nicer. You see, there a door was opened, and we were able to have a conversation, and those two atheists heard the gospel. You see, because I was willing to boldly speak my faith, because I was willing to stand up for the truth, because I I was willing to say that Jesus Christ died in our sins, because I did it with gentleness, doors were open. The reality is I don't always operate difficult situations like I did that day at Northern Michigan University. But we have to be different. You see, we are living in the tension of our world. The reality is that we are living with the understanding that judgment is coming. But also the understanding that Jesus died on the cross. We understand that sin will be condemned, but we also understand that a Savior has come and His name is Jesus. The world is dying and we have the answer. So we operate through this world speaking the truth. It means at times that people will hate us. It means at times that people will despise us. But if we speak the truth clearly, it means that someday, sometime, someone will come to know Jesus. Because the reality is that Jesus can heal the most broken of hearts, the most vile of sinners, because we are the worst of the worst, and Jesus has saved us. Just like Shechem and the sons of Jacob, we were worthy of condemnation. But we are here as evidence that salvation is possible and is working in our hearts and we can speak the truth. 
The question is, will we operate on either side of the spectrum or we choose the middle ground that is willing to take abuse, that is willing to take the hatred of this world, but is willing to love people for the sake of Jesus? That's our choice and the question that I leave you with this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that you have given us the truth. That though we don't deserve it, though we did not earn it, and though we are deserving of condemnation, you came to rescue us. We have salvation not because we are good, not because we are righteous, but because Jesus chose to die on the cross. God, give us the faith to share that salvation with the world and feel the pain and suffering for the sake of those who are lost and lonely. God, give us the strength to share Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.